Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Hey, it's Karen Steph back for another episode of Hands in Motion. Today we are joined by Aviva Wolf, an OTCHT who has taken a special interest in the last several years to working with musicians. She has had the opportunity to work with musicians of all skill levels and who play all types of musical instruments. We will discuss the unique characteristics of musicians and the types of injuries they sustain, as well as the importance of a thorough assessment to fully understand their craft. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Aviva. So hi, Aviva. Welcome to our podcast this evening. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I'm an OTCHT, like many of you listeners, and I became interested in hands very early on in my occupational therapy career, first year in actually, maybe even before the first year. And my first internship was at Kessler Institute in Saddlebrook, New Jersey. And that was a general physical disabilities internship, general rehab. So I, I was in the outpatient department and saw a lot of stroke, spinal cord injury, you name it. And there was a hand therapist there who saw a CHT who saw the hand injury patients and everything she did was so super cool. And she would fabricate these very intricate involved work of art splints. And I was just so enamored and fascinated by what she did. And they offered me a job right out of my internship. So that was my very first job. And when she was she was the only hand therapist there. So if she would go on leave or vacation or there was an overflow, I mean, I was the lowest man in the totem pole. So I'd have to wait until she was off and somebody else was off and there was an overflow just <laughs> to see that one wrist fracture, that one carpal tunnel. So that was how I fell in love with hand therapy. And shortly after that, I started looking for a position in hand therapy. And as you all know, it's really hard to find a hand therapy position when you're not a certified hand therapist. So I took a job in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which at the time was a 65 mile drive from my home. It was a small private practice. But I'm like, if they're willing to train me, I'm going to do it. And I did it for about a year and a half, learned a lot. And then with that experience, was able to be hot, you know, that allowed me to get hired at Hospital for Special Surgery in 1994. And I've been there ever since. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> so I've been in many different roles. I started out as a staff therapist, then a senior therapist, and then I ran the hand therapy for a bit, for about eight years. And then I went back for a doctoral degree in motor learning and control. So I, since then I've been working, splitting my time between the clinic and our motion lab, doing upper extremity, biomechanics, movement analysis, research, academia. 
blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but the big question, I think, is how to get to musicians, right? Yeah, most- exactly. <laughs> None of this. Where does that fit in? <laughs> where, do, where does that fit in? And so that's really interesting because I'm not a musician. I don't even love music that much. I'm like an ordinary person. I enjoy music, but I'm not a music fanatic. I don't have this unbelievable understanding of classical music. So it really was this, like, the stars were aligned and it was this serendipitous thing that fell into my lap. And I'll tell you how. So because of my doctoral work, which was in motor control and a lot of brain hand related function, my dissertation was actually in cerebral palsy grasp control. So it was the relationship between the brain and the hand. So a lot of the hand therapy I did had some component of that because I had learned a lot about neuroplasticity. So I worked with some patients with chronic pain and focal dystonia. And through that, I saw several patients with focal dystonia who are musicians. And I tried some kind of out of the box things with them at the time, like mirror therapy and neuroplastic techniques. And you know how it is, like you see one, you see two, you see three, then you become the expert and then everyone starts referring patients to you. So from these musician dystonia patients, I got other musician referrals. And about seven, eight years ago, there was a a woman who's well known in the hand therapy world by the name of Carol Johnson. She's, I believe, in her early 90s now. And she was the musician's hand therapist in New York City. She was a concert pianist herself. She was a graduate of Juilliard. She consulted for them. And she saw musicians from all over. And she was retiring at the age of 80 something. And they were looking for someone to replace her. And someone recommended actually a friend colleague of mine at New York Hospital, who is the administrator, they have a center for performing arts. And she's referred patients to me over the years, she gave them my name, they contacted me, I interviewed at the time. I'm like, I have this full time job, but my second daughter was starting college, like I could use a little side income a few extra hours a week in the evening. Sure, sounds fun. Why not? So that's how I started at Juilliard. And in the beginning, they have a phenomenal health service center. So I was there a few hours a week in the late afternoon, evening, and students who were were injured would come to see me. And at first, students come in and it's, you know, my thumb's hurting me, my elbow's hurting me. Well, when did this happen? Over the weekend, I was practicing this really difficult Rahmaninoff piece and for 10 hours, and now my hand hurts. Like, well, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Take breaks. So I'm treating it the way I treat, you know, any overused tendonitis injury. And I, I recall coming home, like one of the first few weeks and telling my husband, I feel like 
this is, I'm just not the right fit for this because I've been a hand therapist and an elite orthopedic institution for 20 something years. I'm used to working with very complex cases. Everything that I'm seeing seems so, you know, simple and preventable, but I have a contract with them. I'll see the contract out, but it's not for me. But because I had the contract and I, you know, I'm there. So time goes on and, you know, every, every student that comes in, I start asking them questions. How do you play? What instruments do you play? What are your practice behaviors? Why don't you bring your instrument in? So what happened a few months in was I noticed these patterns emerge, like which instrumentalists were getting injured more frequently, what types of injuries, the body types. And I started having everyone bring their instrument in, videotape them. And because of my background in movement analysis and biomechanics and using video, that became my approach. And then I would have these conversations with them that sounded like a broken record, as they used to say, right? Where you're just repeating yourself and repeating yourself, you know, about practicing good habits and good posture and changing the, you know, the way you interface with the, the instrument. But more importantly, what was so telling in so many of these instrumentalists was the muscle pattern that you'd see. So you'd see like certain muscles get shortened and tight and contribute to a certain posture, like anterior shoulder, forward head and neck, other, you know, flexor tightness, other muscles completely weak, like the whole posterior chain, like the serratus and the rhomboids. And, and it doesn't take, you know, rocket science to figure out why it's what they're doing all day. And they're overusing certain muscles and underusing others. But what was interesting about the musician population is no one ever taught them about their bodies and their anatomy and no one had ever given them instruction in exercise or conditioning or strengthening or stretches. So every musician was out there, you know, floundering around, learning on their own, learning from their injury. So that really shifted my approach from a kind of traditional treat the problem approach to a more active preventive approach. You know, how can we educate and prevent injuries? And ever since then, I've been on such a high because I'm learning so much every day. I've been doing this for over seven years now. I've learned so much about the demands of each instrument, the demands of different genres of music, the demands of a conservatory student versus, you know, a high school band player. So every group of musicians has their own demands, professional demands, body demands. And when I finished my dissertation, I was like, what do I do next? What area of research do I dive into and dig into? And I went through like two years of this professional existential crisis. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, the music world, like there's so many directions to go here. I could spend the rest of my life just studying the ergonomic, functional demands of musicians and the clinical applications of all that. So 
everything came together for me, the research, the education, the clinical. And for me, because I love all three so much, it's an opportunity to work clinically, educate musicians, music administrators, music students, and clinicians. So that's my story. (laughs) That's a great story. (laughs) So I know, you know, you do the treatment. Do you see them in the school? Say if you're working or consulting for Juilliard, you see them in the school, in that setting. And you said it is not a typical treatment approach. So education is a huge part. So it's more of like health education, ergonomic training. What would be some of the ergonomic suggestions or recommendations that you would have to provide to the students? Is there one type of instrument that seems to be to have worse postures than others? I would think yes, but I am not a musician. (laughs) Yeah. So the assessment is interesting because I'm a clinician. And I think one thing that I learned working with musicians is they don't see a lot of Western practitioners very often. The number of musicians who have a musculoskeletal overuse injury or have a musculoskeletal overuse pain is extraordinarily high. There's a range of incidents in the research, but it's as high as 93%, which means that every musician will have one musculoskeletal injury episode for their career or per lifetime, which is very high. So that's basically like saying all musicians will have an injury at some point. So they will seek because, and I think this falls on us a little bit as clinicians, because so many Western clinicians don't really understand the demands of professional musicians, We'll see them in the clinic and we'll do our standard assessment and say, okay, now you need to rest for two weeks or a month or wear a splint or a brace or, but that doesn't work for, certainly not for a professional musician and not for students in these conservatories, which are the equivalent of like Harvard Law School or, you know, some elite MBA program or professional athletes on elite professional teams. No one would tell a professional athlete for a tendonitis to take the season off. (laughs) Right. So you can't really tell a professional musician to not play. I mean, this is their livelihood. These are their commitments. So because of that, we have to approach it very differently. So the assessment, yes, you're going to do your standard OTPT musculoskeletal assessment, but then you do a, a comprehensive playing history, like musicians playing and performance history, what might have changed to cause this. And then the assessment has to include observing them with the instrument. And you could do that by asking them to bring in a video recording. If the instrument is, you know, not everyone can have a musician haul their cello or upright bass, or certainly not their piano into your OT clinic, but you can have them take a video at home 360 degrees, somebody records it, you bring it in, you watch it with them. And I usually have them record a static video, a slow piece, like just scales, 60 seconds each, and then a fast challenging piece. So I can see, it gives me different information. 
And then based on the instrument and what you see in the video and their symptoms, you're going to make different recommendations. So some examples, well, you asked what are the more common instruments. So certainly the high strings like violin, viola, where it's a very asymmetrical instrument, you have to use your chin and head to support the instrument. That's going to lead to a whole, if the muscles aren't conditioned properly, if they're not using the proper size instrument or the proper setup, it could lead to all sorts of problems. So again, what's interesting about these musical instruments are the sizes of the instrument are standard. So a piano is a piano, but human bodies aren't standard. So we're all different heights. Our limbs are different lengths. Our fingers are different lengths, widths. For violinists, you know, the neck length makes a big difference. If you have a long neck, you'll need more support So let's say a higher chin rest or a higher shoulder rest. Someone with a short neck might not need a shoulder rest at all. They might just need a little foam pad under the violin. But these are things that they don't necessarily know. Some music teachers are pretty savvy about posture and musculoskeletal use and give good advice and suggestions, but not all. I view the music teacher as you know, as clinicians, we think of the interdisciplinary team. To me, the musician teacher is an important member of the interdisciplinary team. So like just how you would consult with a surgeon about a patient, that's how I would consult with a musician teacher about a student, asking them right for their expertise and input, because I don't know what the music's supposed to sound like. I can tell you what the body's supposed to do, but is this right for that instrument? So together we can come up with a plan, which is really nice. So I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it did. So as the, I guess, resident band nerd in this group, because I did play an instrument, um, I think this is all really fascinating. And one, I did have a chance to read one of the articles that was just recently published. And you make that same point about with your assessment, looking at having them play a fast piece, having them play a slow piece, have them play standing, have them play sitting. Cause a lot of times are they rehearsing sitting, but then they go to their performance and they're playing. And so to think about how different pieces that they're playing in their repertoire can have an impact on this. And it might be that that's when that triggers their overuse, or maybe it is the slower piece, or maybe it's when they're trying to, I don't know, play these really loud pieces or whatever, like all of that can have an impact on, you know, their injury. I thought that was really fascinating. I'll tell you a funny story. Actually, I gave a talk to the piano faculty at a conservatory. I won't say which. And I got a lot of pushback because these were older music teachers and no one ever taught them how to use their bodies and they figured it out and they never had any classes on health education or injury prevention. So why do their students need it? And I showed them a lot of, it was a PowerPoint presentation. So I showed a lot of information and pictures and, and one professor said to me, I don't understand when my student is with me in the 
lesson. I'm looking at their posture. I make recommendations. I can see, I can see how they're playing. So then I show them a picture of the conservatory practice rooms where the students practice eight to 10 hours a day. No chair, boxes, older pianos. You can't adjust the height of the bench or anything. The lighting is dim. And actually the chair of the piano faculty said, oh my goodness, is that what those practice rooms look like? We have to change that. We have to change that immediately. We had no idea. And they really had no idea because you see them playing the beautiful grand piano and the adjustable chair with the incline. But then the other eight hours a day, they're banging away to make sound out of these sticky keys that are old. And yeah. Makes a difference for sure. So you, you really have to do a little detective work and ask them because they don't know to volunteer this information. Like, where are you doing all your practice? And where is your music and your music stand? Because when musicians perform, the stand is traditionally low so the audience can see their face. But what I tell students and musicians all the time is when you're at home practicing, no one has to see your face. So raise that stand up so that it's at a good height so you're not craning your neck or bending your head. So things that might seem intuitive to us because this is what we do are so not intuitive. I think the other thing that you mentioned earlier that I found fascinating is like, even if you think comparing these musicians to athletes, like they're an athlete of a different craft. And I thought it was really interesting that you said that so many of them are are just not in tune to their bodies. And we think about like athletes in sports and like the science and like, they know what their bodies do it for the most part, know what their bodies are doing in space, but these musicians, yes, there's a science to music, but more of the art. And it's just a different a different craft. And so I think that's really interesting that you've noticed that and have to identify that and help these students, these musicians kind of get in tune with their body so that they are aware of where it is in space and how, you know, yes, they may be holding these postures for a really long time, but being aware of where their body is in this, in that space. Yeah. And there are a lot of small things that you know, as observers, we're able to point out that they don't even realize they're doing. So for example, and for me, it's actually taken the fun out of going to a concert and <laughs> listening to music, because all I'm doing is watching their posture. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll see, you know, I'll, I'll use the bow instrumentalists again, because even when they're not playing, they're like perched, right? Like ready, like the hand is clenching the bow, they're in position. And you'll see that many instrumentalists, they're like holding the position even when they're not playing. So one of the things we try to change is just being more aware and doing these body scans and like just relaxing and doing these little shifts, these tiny little micro movements, even while they're playing to give the muscles a chance to relax. And I go through a lot of, as part of the education, just understanding how muscles benefit from increased circulation and oxygen consumption. And that 
they need it in order to perform better, faster. So it's not just about being healthy, but it's also about the sound and the performance. And one of the things that, again, is so counterintuitive to musicians, and they often laugh at me, but I always say it's my dream that like the New York Philharmonic will begin their performance with two minutes of warming up their body, like on stage, because that's, that's what I tell all musicians to do before you play your instrument, get your heart rate up just as any athlete, right? Get your muscles warmed up. And many of them do on the instrument, but not off the instrument, which is so, so important. Yeah. I mean, I remember before every performance that we did, it was okay. Get, get your embouchure warm. <laughs> I was a brass instrument player actually can play three instruments. I played the French horn all through junior high and high school. I wanted so bad to play the flute. And so I talked to my parents into letting me take private lessons for that. Very different than the French horn. And then a few years ago, I always thought the violin was so beautiful. And so a few years ago, I started taking lessons from this girl who was younger than me. And I was her oldest student, but I would, I took lessons once a week from her to learn to play the violin. I learned a few songs and then kind of gave it up. So, but you're right. I mean, I remember us before every practice, like every string school, every class period that we had band, everybody was making all this noise in the band hall and before performances, but we never did warmups. And even like March, I was in the marching band too. And we did not do that either. I mean, that's, I think that too, if you're doing that movement, having that warm up is, is important. Absolutely. And what's interesting is when I became more involved with musicians and started thinking about it a little more critically, I went to the literature and there is a lot out there. There are people who have been doing this for a while and have been advocating for this. And there's a phenomenal organization, the Performing Arts and Medicine Association, which is a multidisciplinary association for musicians, clinicians who treat musicians. So physicians, speech therapists, PTs, OTs, nutritionists, and it's dancers, musicians, actors. So it's, it services a large group of people. So there's some phenomenal benefits to that, but then you don't get the specific information isn't as robust in these meetings because it's, it's more of an interdisciplinary meeting. And then there's an organization called the National Association of Schools of Medicine that together with PAMA in 2006, put together guidelines for music schools and music programs. And even so, everywhere I go, I rarely, rarely see music schools or music programs that address any of this and the musicians I meet, it's like they're hearing it for the first time, which is amazing. So I'm on a crusade now to just (laughs) popularize this information in whatever way possible. Anyone who will listen to me, I speak to elementary school, high school, college, music groups, clinicians, There's a wonderful physical therapist who's been working with musicians for many years in Australia, Bronwyn Ackerman. And she has written extensively and done a lot of research. She's a physical therapist with some background in hands, but mostly general PT. And she's doing some very interesting research now in focal dystonia. 
So she's my, you know, she's been my hero and just trying to kind of emulate what she's done in Australia and globally, but more so in the United States, raise awareness because we have so little here. So in your your latest article that just came out, I found it really interesting that it said that there was a higher incidence of injury in the musician students versus the professional musicians. And why, why is that? Is there a different practice schedule? So I think because musician students are, yes, their practice schedule, the serious musician students who are in collegiate programs or conservatories have very demanding practice schedules. But more than that, they haven't learned their bodies yet. So they go from high school where they're already playing seriously to this intense playing mode, and they haven't figured out what their body is capable of. So like I said earlier, most of the musicians I encounter learn the hard way. And, you know, I guess as humans, that's our tendency, right? I mean, we don't like prevention as humans. We don't like to eat right. We don't like to sleep right. We don't like to exercise. And for many of us, something has to happen to make us, you know, do all the things that that we don't like to do. So I think it's the same for musician students. And then the, the professional musicians have figured it out. They figured out what works for them. But one of the piano instructors at Juilliard always says, and she's very well known, and this is coming from a, a conservatory, playing more doesn't mean playing better. It's playing efficiently, right? So more is not better. Better is better. So... I think that's something that a lot of students have to learn, that when they're tired or when their muscles start giving out, what are some smarter ways that they could practice? And there are a lot of hacks. There are a lot of hacks, like rotating your repertoire so that you're not practicing the same pieces over and over again, teasing out the more difficult parts of the repertoire, playing more softly or slower than the music demands when you're learning it, supplementing with singing or what we call shadow playing where you're not actually using force, but just kind of fingering. So there are a lot of tricks, but I will say that the injuries that I see in professional musicians are different than the injuries I see in the amateur or musician students. The professional musicians, when they have overuse injuries, it's because something's changed. Either it's a new instrument or they've had many more demands than their usual. They they may be after COVID, for example. I mean, during, well, we're not after COVID yet, unfortunately, but (laughs) after a lockdown, I should say. After lockdown, we were seeing more seasoned musicians with injuries because their conditioning, their habits changed and the condition changed. There's a department, many conservatories have a a department for historical performance, which is instruments that are based on, right? They're historical instruments. Those students often play multiple instruments, 
whenever people play more than one instrument, they're more prone to injury because again, the muscles aren't conditioned for that particular instrument. So you work with these very skilled musicians. What is your advice for community clinicians who are seeing either musicians who've played an instrument for 20, 30 something years, and now it's kind of a hobby and they're, they have these overuse injuries or high school students who are practicing. They practice year round because they've got marching season in the fall and concert season in the spring. And maybe there is a different instrument. I mean, I know for me with the French horn, it was the mellophone in the fall and the the French horn in the spring. So how, what is your advice for community clinicians who are seeing musicians? So first of all, I do see musicians of all rank and file. So from your weekend warrior type amateur retiree who decides to pick up an instrument for the very first time. And I'm always so inspired by people who could do that. I see all levels from amateur to super professional and children as well. And children is, I mean, we can, we can have another conversation about children because that that's interesting, but to answer your question, The best advice for clinicians and musicians is when you're starting a new instrument or new repertoire or switching from one instrument to another or coming back after vacation or after a sick leave or after any hiatus, it's important to ease in gradually. And the best way to do that is with what we call a return to play rubric which I did not make up. There was actually a Dr. Norris who worked with musicians probably in the 70s and 80s who wrote a book, like a manual on how to treat musicians, which is out of print. I believe he's the first person to have created this rubric. And then there are several spinoffs. There's one in the chapter in Catherine Butler's Rehab of the Hand. She has a chapter on treating the musician. She has a rubric in there that's based off of his. I have one I think we published in one of the articles in Journal of Hand Therapy, also adapted from these. But the cool thing about this rubric is musicians tend to be extremely disciplined and they like very clear instructions and they're used to practice schedules. So I will say out of all my patients in all the years, musicians as a group, are the most compliant with home programs and their homework. (laughs) So mostly if you tell them to do something, they do it. So I found this rubric to be really helpful. You start at a very low level where you play for as much as three minutes and then with a break and then three minutes and a break. So your first day, you might be playing as much as 18 minutes, but it's broken up over two sessions And you have your nine minutes are also broken up. And then you stay at that level for two to three days. And then if that feels fine, you can go up to the next level. And if it doesn't, you go back down a level. But that way you have a way of constantly, it's a guide. So you can grade yourself and use it as a guide. And so we have a return to play after injury rubric 
which is a little longer, and then a shortened version, which is return to play after vacation or a short break. Oh, that's really cool. I've never heard of that. Again, kind of going back with athletes, you've got return to throwing programs, you've got returning to running programs. So that's a nice guide that I think clinicians could benefit from using. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you so much, Aviva, for joining us for our podcast. And we are so thankful that you were able to join us. Thank you for having me. It's been such a passion of mine to treat this population and to work with other people who are passionate about treating musicians. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.